This is one of the fundamental dividing issues between the Jesus movement and Pharisaic Judaism. And remember, Jesus is trying to shield his disciples from the contagious and corrosive attitude of that group. He does not want them thinking that way. But here we see they are thinking that way. They underestimate sin and they overestimate power. They think change will happen. They think the kingdom will come if Jesus seizes control of the nation and expels the occupying power of Rome. They think that's the solution. But Jesus knows they have misdiagnosed the problem. They don't understand the seriousness of sin, and therefore they can't understand the necessity of the cross. That's what Peter is missing just like pretty much every other Jew at that time. Jesus is doing something that no one fully understands yet, not even Peter. And so Peter needs to get back in line. He is not ready to be Jesus' teaching assistant. He is still thinking like everybody else. And though it is clear that God has been at work in his life, he still has an awful lot to learn. Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. The Jewish people in the time of Jesus underestimated the impact of sin and overestimated what could be accomplished through political power. I would think that much the same criticism could be leveled against the church in North America today. Here to explore that a little further is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Matthew chapter 16. We're in the middle of a section in Matthew's gospel that we have given the title Progressive Polarization. What we're seeing in this section is Judaism splitting down the middle under the pressure of Jesus' ministry and claims. We'll begin reading at verse 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. Now, you'll recall that in chapter 15, Jesus left Jewish territory in order to de-escalate tensions with the Jerusalem authorities. And here we see that the moment he re-enters Jewish territory, that conflict is immediately resumed. The strange coalition of the Pharisees and the Sadducees suggests that this was an official delegation from the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of the Jews that was comprised of both of these groups together. We pick up the story again in verse 2. He answered them, When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. The leaders in Jerusalem can't interpret all the signs that Jesus has already done, and therefore he will give them no further signs to consider apart from his impending death and resurrection, which he refers to as the sign of Jonah. As Jonah the prophet died in the belly of the whale and on the third day rose again, as it were, so shall the Son of Man. Let them consider the significance of that if they will. After this confrontation, Jesus once again retreats north 
into Gentile territory. Verse 5. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, Oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourself the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now here we should probably take note of two things. We should notice first of all that the disciples were sometimes guilty of taking Jesus too literally. The goal is not to interpret the Bible as literally as possible. The goal is to interpret the text as it intends to be interpreted. If the text intends to be taken literally, then we should take it literally. But if the text, or in this case, if Jesus intends to be taken figuratively, then that is the way we should interpret the text. Sometimes crass literalism becomes a sort of badge of honor among the uber-conservative But the best way to honor the text is to take the text in the sense that the text is given. And Jesus is clearly speaking in a symbolic sense here. And he is a little bit annoyed that the disciples are so slow to see that. Secondly, we should notice that Jesus was worried about his disciples being influenced by the attitude of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Unbelief is contagious. Pride is contagious. Skepticism is contagious. Hypocrisy is contagious contagious. Therefore, young disciples, beware your associations. You will absorb the spirit of the age. That's human nature. And Jesus is spotting its effect upon his disciples, and he warns them to take appropriate action. Verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is. Let's just pause here so we can understand the movement and the geography. Remember, Jesus has come back down into Jewish territory and has had another unpleasant encounter with the powers that be and has therefore withdrawn into more Gentile territory in order to spend some time with his disciples away from the deleterious influence of the Jerusalem authorities. The text says that he has withdrawn to Caesarea Philippi, which was about 25 miles north of Galilee. So this is a a leadership retreat. And at some point on the retreat, Jesus asks his disciples a very important question. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Verse 14. And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. 
I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. This is a very important and obviously a very controversial passage. Notice, first of all, that Peter's understanding, however limited, is declared by Jesus to have been a gift from God. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, Peter. You didn't achieve this level of insight via normal human means. Rather, God the Father has graciously revealed this to you. Faith is a gift. Peter's understanding is not yet complete. No one is going to have a fully developed understanding of Jesus until after the cross and after the resurrection. But it is steadily progressing as a result of the gracious self-disclosure of God. Now, as to Peter being the rock upon which Christ will build his church, a few comments should be made here. Number one, according to the Bible, Old Testament and New, Jesus is the ultimate cornerstone of the church. And all of the apostles are declared to be part of the authoritative foundation. In Ephesians 2, the Apostle Paul says that the church is being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Thus, what is said of Peter here will later be applied to all of the apostles. Peter is unique in that he was first, but he is not unique in the sense that all the other apostles are secondary to him. That's not what's being said. Nor is there anything being said here about apostolic succession, infallibility, or any of the other Roman Catholic doctrines that go far beyond the words of this text. Secondly, while Peter is said to have the keys here, Jesus is said to have the keys in Revelation 1.18 and Revelation 3.7, and the whole church is involved in church discipline in Matthew 18.18. So it seems that the emphasis is on, again, Peter being first in terms of sequence, not first in terms of hierarchy and authority. Third, as to the meaning of the keys, it seems that it has to do with who enters the kingdom of God and who is excluded. This may relate secondarily to church discipline, but its primary meaning likely relates to ushering people in by means of preaching the gospel. Luke 11.52 is helpful here, where the teachers of the law have taken away the key. That is, they have effectively barred the way to the kingdom with ignorant teaching. Thus, for Peter to have the keys here means that he is to preach the gospel of the kingdom so as to help others enter in, as indeed he has been helped to enter in. Pastor Paul, I want to jump in here because there's a line in that encounter between Jesus and Peter that I was hoping you would touch on, but with everything you needed to say about the keys of the kingdom and Peter being the rock, you didn't have time to get to it. So I want to circle back now if we can. Yeah, sure. So Matthew 16, verse 18, records Jesus saying to Peter, and presumably to all of us, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, what does that exactly mean? Does that mean that Jesus will protect the church from all the demons of hell? That's kind of what it sounds like it's going to mean, but then I wonder, how do we square that with all the persecution that's happened over the centuries, not to mention all the persecution happening now, places like North Korea, China, Afghanistan. So how should we be hearing this verse? I mean, I want to claim that promise, but I want to make sure I'm understanding it properly first. Yeah, and that's always important to do, isn't it? 
First of all, it's probably helpful for us to go back and make sure that we're hearing it right. Jesus doesn't say, I will protect the church from the armies of hell. Rather, he says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So Jesus isn't saying here that he will protect the church from attackers. Rather, he seems to be saying that the church will be the one advancing and that nothing the devil does will be able to prevent that. Okay, well, that's mildly mind-blowing. That's the exact opposite of how I've been hearing that verse my entire life. So just to go back to my concern, does this mean then that Jesus isn't promising to protect the church? Well, it's complicated. The answer is kind of yes and no. Remember back in Matthew 10, which we read together a few weeks ago, Jesus said, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men... I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven, close quote. So there, Jesus tells his disciples not to be afraid, specifically not to be afraid of people who can kill the body, but not the soul. Which sounds like everybody. Yeah, pretty much, right? Yeah. I mean, that, that includes the government, terrorists, murderers, persecutors, and even the devil. We have enemies, sure, but none of those people, none of those entities has final say over the destiny of our souls. Only God has that. And so Jesus is saying we should fear God and nothing else. But he certainly does not promise his disciples peace and protection. In fact, in the very next verse, he says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. That's Matthew 10, 34. So it sounds like he is promising them conflict, upheaval, and persecution. Awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. But the good news is that he is saying that if we are faithful to him and if we hold fast our confession of faith, then he will speak on our behalf at the final judgment. And that's very good news. When it's your turn to stand before God on judgment day, you want Jesus to step forward as your public defender. That's a good thing. That's a guaranteed thing. And therefore, Jesus is saying, do not be afraid. So he doesn't promise to protect the church from all enemies, yet at the same time, he is saying here that the church is going to advance. So how does that all go together? Right. Well, as I said, it's complicated, but not unexpected. Way back in the Old Testament, there were all kinds of prophecies about the miraculous advance of Messiah's kingdom. In Zechariah 9, verse 10, it says, His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So that's big advance. <laughs> yeah, huge advance. That's all-encompassing spread and total saturation. Mm, I like the sound of that. Right, me too. But it doesn't sound easy or entirely bloodless. A few verses later in that same prophecy, speaking about the people of Messiah, it says, They shall be like mighty men in battle, trampling the foe in the mud of the streets. They shall fight because the Lord is with them, and they shall put to shame the riders on horses. That's Zechariah 10.5. So this prophecy says that the people of Messiah are going to be powerful. In fact, they're going to be able to advance even against the superior force and weight of cavalry. So Joyce Baldwin says here, the simile, the comparison that's being made in that passage, the simile is intended to describe triumphant conquest 
in the face of overwhelming odds. Footmen against cavalry. The fact that they have fought at all and not fled in retreat admits of only one explanation. The Lord is with them. She goes on to say, Those who in their submission to the Lord are like sheep become invincible as war horses in his service. Close quote. So that's what's being promised in Zechariah. And that is what Jesus is confirming to his disciples here. His people, his church are going to be strong. His church is going to be unstoppable. It's going to be resilient. It is going to advance. Praise the Lord. But there may be a fair bit of bleeding and dying in the muck along the way. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what I mean about it being complicated. If you are prepared to read the Bible honestly here, what the scripture seems to be promising is painful, bloody, muddy, relentless advance. So we have two extremes. On the one hand, obviously, we want to avoid the error of triumphalism, thinking that this is just going to be a cakewalk, that everything's going to be easy. Nope. Jesus said we shouldn't be afraid to die. He said that we shouldn't fear the swords of men because our souls will be safe in his care come judgment day. So bleeding and dying are definitely on the table. So no triumphalism. But on the other hand, also no defeatism. The church will advance like footmen fighting and winning an uphill battle in the mud against cavalry. We will advance. We will push forward and the gates of hell will not prevail against us. Now, gates are defensive. This is Jesus saying that we will bust down the doors of hell. We will defeat the devil, though we may bleed and die and hurt along the way. Mm, All right. I think I'm glad I asked that question. Mm -hmm. It it is good that I asked that question. Now I think we all probably need grace to live up to what you just said in your answer. Yeah, all of us. Just, Just like the disciples, I think a lot of us in the modern day North American church do not fully understand the amount of pain and suffering we may have to press through before we enjoy the final victory. All right, thanks for that. Let's jump back into the story now at verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Here we see that the death and resurrection of Christ are foundational events in the building up of the church that Jesus has just spoken of. But Peter, as of yet, has no category for understanding these things. We see that in verse 22. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. We see here, of course, that Peter's faith is still in process. He recognized Jesus as the Messiah and even as the Son of God, but he did not yet recognize Jesus as the suffering Savior. We're often very hard on Peter here, and yet the truth is that Peter was thinking right in step with most other Jews of his time. The Jews as a whole did not think the same way about sin as Christians later came to do. E.P. Sanders, for example, says, It is important to note that the rabbis did not have a doctrine of original sin or of the essential sinfulness of each man in the Christian sense, closed quote. 
This is one of the fundamental dividing issues between the Jesus movement and Pharisaic Judaism. And remember, Jesus is trying to shield his disciples from the contagious and corrosive attitude of that group. He does not want them thinking that way. But here we see they are thinking that way. They underestimate sin and they overestimate power. They think change will happen. They think the kingdom will come if Jesus seizes control of the nation and expels the occupying power of Rome. They think that's the solution. But Jesus knows they have misdiagnosed the problem. They don't understand the seriousness of sin, and therefore they can't understand the necessity of the cross. That's what Peter is missing just like pretty much every other Jew at that time. Jesus is doing something that no one fully understands yet, not even Peter. And so Peter needs to get back in line. He is not ready to be Jesus' teaching assistant. He is still thinking like everybody else. And though it is clear that God has been at work in his life, he still has an awful lot to learn. We pick up the story again at verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Here we see that the cross is not just an atonement to be received, it is also an example to be followed. It commends sacrificial service and mission to all who would follow Jesus. It establishes the way of lowliness and rejection as the unexpected pathway to the kingdom of heaven. Notice also that judgment in the Bible is always according to works. In verse 27, Jesus makes that explicit. We are saved by grace, but judged by works. The assumption is that the grace we are given will surely result in works in keeping with repentance. If you make the tree good, then it will produce fruit in keeping with repentance. That assumption shows up in almost every teaching in the New Testament on the final judgment. We come to the end of chapter 16 and verse 28. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. I mentioned that this is the end of chapter 16, and that's true. But of course, originally, it was also the start of the story told in chapter 17. The chapter divisions are artificial and come much later, and it is surely significant that in all three of the synoptic gospels, this saying immediately precedes the story of the transfiguration. The most natural interpretation, therefore, is that a select group of the disciples will receive an advanced preview of the king in all his kingdom glory while the rest will experience those things upon death or the second coming. Thanks be to God. Amen. After all that we talked about just a few minutes ago, 
What Jesus says there at the end of the chapter about taking up your cross to follow him takes on a whole new meaning. There's a valley to walk through before the mountain on the other side and a cross to carry before we receive our crown. We'll be talking more about that in the weeks and episodes ahead. As always, friends, if you're looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. Or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes Store or on Google Play. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and with other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just enter Into the Word into the search bar. And we'll see you right back here next Sunday morning as we continue our journey together through the whole counsel of God. We'll see you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 